0: Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at
1: landmark.edu lcsi. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, MindShift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism.
4: Welcome to MindShift, the podcast about the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung.
5: And I'm Nima Gobier, here with a three-part episode looking at how schools structure time. Time. Time.
0: Time. Time. time.
5: We're going to talk school bells, school start times, and finally, the promise and perils of the four-day school week.
4: Well, Nima, I think it's time for our first act. Let's start with bells. There are lots of types
5: the church bell, the cowbell, the doorbell, and today we're going to talk about the school bell.
6: The bell doesn't release you, I do.
5: Yeah, the school bell is not everyone's favorite type of bell. So in this first act, where school bells came from and why the way we think about them is all wrong. Audrey Waters is an ed tech journalist. She did some digging on myths behind the bell and if they ring true.
7: The catchiest but the most offensive one is probably the phrase cells and bells. This idea that schools are like prisons and that Ringing of the bell is just a matter of moving students slash prisoners from one physical location to the next. People often say that school bells were used to sort of train students to become docile factory workers.
5: But can school bells really trace their origins to the prison system or the factory?
7: That's historically inaccurate. It's simply
5: not true. But those stories became popular for a reason. Audrey says it's because it can feel true. For folks who think school systems can be doing much better for students, this idea doesn't feel so far flung.
7: You can tell a lot about what a person thinks about school by how they describe the history and the functioning of the school bell today. That bells are training us, that that school can feel stifling. That it really does divide the school day and it divides learning into these arbitrary chunks of time that don't necessarily work with curiosity, inquiry, and really digging into a topic at a lengthy level.
5: Now let's put down the myth and move to the real story behind the bells. Bells have been used throughout human history, and in Western culture, the earliest bells
7: were used in churches but we don't tell the story that schools are modeled on churches. Bells grabbed people's
5: attention and basically told folks it's time to hustle on over. Churches usually house the local school too. And Bells were good at getting folks into pews and getting students into desks.
7: Bells were used to tell people something is about to start. Oftentimes, the teacher did have a handbell that she would ring to signify time for the students to to come into the building. But that handbell would one day be replaced. That handbell is very different, I think, than the kind of automated bell system that we think about today. And the electric bell had a different purpose. It was really to let people know that something was on fire. This was actually a large problem at the turn of the 20th century that there were frequently uh, fires in schools. The
5: spaces where kids were learning were changing, too. They were getting bigger, going from one room to whole buildings. From there, people came up with the idea of moving students to different classes by ringing a bell.
7: This is often known as the Gary Plan. It was implemented in in Gary, Indiana. And it was this first idea that students would move from sort of some students would be out on the playground, then students would move into their language arts class, and then some students would move into math. This was really the first time that a bell was used to sort of coordinate student movement.
5: It was just in a few places and not widely adopted. Bells didn't become common until the mid-20th century. It's actually quite a recent piece of ed tech. Now, the necessity of the bell is being questioned, and experts are weighing in. Nina Krauss is a biologist and professor at Northwestern University. She says school bells can have negative effects, especially for the thousands of students who may be on the autism
2: spectrum. And it's not all the children because, you know, it's a spectrum, and again, each child is his own individual.
5: Some kids on the spectrum have a sensitivity to sound, so loud noises can be upsetting. And it's not just kids on the spectrum who find it jarring.
2: We all are affected by sounds. Even if we're not paying attention to noise, it is having an effect on us on multiple levels. One is very much our ability to think,
5: One study found that New York public school kids had significantly different reading scores, depending on whether they were in a classroom facing busy train tracks or learning in a room that was shielded from the noise. Kids in the noisier room lagged three to 11 months behind in reading levels.
2: There are so many noises that we we do have a choice about that actually affect us. And we should be thinking about these things because they affect really our psychological health in terms of how safe we feel.
5: So when it comes to the school bell, Nina says, why use it? Limiting noise at school could be good for all students. When students were forced to learn at home during the coronavirus pandemic, there were no bells to tell them to go from class to class. So when it came time to come back to school buildings, some school leaders were willing to try doing without the bell. I talked to Concord High English teacher Becca Dell about it.
3: Our principal over the summer, I think, she was at a training or read something that was like, you know, the only places that we still have bells are schools and prisons.
5: Even though we know the prison myth isn't true, it still felt true to folks at the school and they wanted to make a change. Concord High uses a block schedule, so most days they only have three classes with a five-minute passing period. They wanted to see if they could trust students to get where they needed to go, when they needed to be there. But some teachers weren't ready to take the leap. They were concerned that students wouldn't get to class on time, or that other teachers would blow past the end of the class period. And it was a little tricky at first
3: there was a little bit of not necessarily confusion but kind of a couple kids would start going the kids who are checking their watches or checking their phones and then everyone's kind of like oh I, I guess we're going to class and we would be the beginning of the year more like okay guys you got three minutes time to get going but I think as it's gone on it hasn't really been an issue there's the same little pockets of kids being late to class but That's always a thing. You know, our kids being let out early from class, but that's always a thing.
5: Some teachers thought there were more tardies after nixing the school bell,
3: but the numbers didn't show it. Our principals run reports and our tardies are actually less than they've been in the past. Um, But I think it just is that, well, there's no bells and people that don't like change. And so I think that's just been the challenge. Our kids have gotten used to it.
5: One thing teachers have found helpful is having a buffer to start and end each class. So you don't just jump into academic content. There's more room for relationships. Becca ends each class by getting in a circle and having students share out one of the three
3: A's. An appreciation, an apology, or an aha moment that's been an effective way to end it. And then I know a lot of us still start class the same way with like a quick write journal or a warm up. She
5: thinks the Nobel policy is here to stay.
3: Not having the loudness of the bells starting and ending class makes it feel, I don't know, less, less robotic and more free flowing. Even though it's there's still times, it just makes it feel more natural, maybe.
5: And that's the end of act one where we debunked the prison myth and explored why getting rid of the school bell could make schools feel more humane. We are not done talking about time and its impact on learning. For our next act, how just one change in scheduling can improve teens' mental health.
1: behind the scenes footage and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org/podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an s. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.
5: I consider myself a morning person now, but when I had to get up for school, I hit the snooze button as many times as I could. I would run into first period as the bell was ringing. Okay, maybe a little bit after the bell. Waking up just felt so hard. Turns out there's a reason for that. There has been tons of research on teenagers and how they need sleep. And today's teens are sleepier than ever. I talked to two psychotherapists about all of this Heather Turgeon,
0: I'm a psychotherapist and sleep specialist, and
5: Julie Wright. I'm also a psychotherapist and sleep specialist. Heather and Julie are co-authors of the book Generation Sleepless. They say most people don't actually understand how much sleep teens need. Optimal sleep for a teen is something
6: between 9 and 10 hours. We consider adequate sleep, the very lowest amount that they can really get by on, to be about 8.
5: In most cases, Heather says kids aren't lazy or trying to be more independent when they hit the snooze button
0: in the morning one of the things that happens somewhere around age 12 is that their brain clocks become set to a later pace. So the clock in the brain literally becomes set to about two hours later than a young child or an adult. Teenagers, that that means they want to go to sleep later and they want to wake up later. Their period of sleep is actually shifted. So staying up late? that's totally natural. It's a literal change in their chemistry and the timing of their brain clock that um, sets them to a later rhythm than the rest of us.
5: The average high schooler gets about six and a half hours of sleep and missing out on
0: just a couple of hours of rest each night adds up. When you are sleep deprived, your reactive, the amygdala center of the brain, it's it's the part of our brain that signals danger and threat becomes extra active.
5: A sleep-deprived brain is way more at risk for mental health problems. Sleep issues are commonly associated with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and ADHD. Here's Julie.
6: We see teens with really critical mental health issues and accidents and suicidality and things that parents really worry about, and getting enough sleep addresses
5: those issues. And moves are being made to address students' sleep needs. In 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom passed a bill saying that high schools in California have to start after 8:30 a.m. Other states are looking into changing start times, but California is the first state to require it. But a lot of schools and parents are resistant to changing the school schedule. There are three common arguments that pop up every time someone wants to let kids sleep in. Here's the first
4: the logistics will be bananas. My kid plays all these sports and
3: has extracurriculars. What about bus schedules or traffic?
5: It is gonna take adjustment. Sometimes it makes more sense for an entire district to move over to a later school start so that practices and games are at the same time. And Heather says bus schedules might need to change too.
0: I think it's just really important to know that all those concerns are logistical concerns. And so do we weigh logistics and like those things that are adult centered or do we want to weigh the mental health of teenagers? And I think if you put it that way to parents, there's no question what the answer should be.
5: And the second argument against later school start times.
7: It's fine. They have plenty of time on the weekends to catch up on their sleep.
5: If you have a teen, you've probably seen them stumble out of bed sometime in the afternoon on a Saturday or Sunday. It's shocking how long they can sleep. 12 hours? What? Bad news, though. All those hours don't make up for the sleep they miss during the week.
6: Regularity of sleep is as important as duration.
5: Some schools think they're doing great by having a late start one day of the week. But Julie and Heather say it's not enough.
0: There is such a thing as rebound sleep, which is what happens when you finally sleep well and then you're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. You do have rebound sleep, but you can't go back in time and erase the toll that happened to your body during the week. Your body and your brain were still under stress. Toxins were building up in the brain. There's still all those effects throughout the week that do not go away. You still had that toll on your body still happened.
5: And lastly, the third argument you might hear against later school starts...
2: If we give kids later start times, they'll just stay up later on their phone or play video games.
5: Okay, so this one isn't completely false. But it's not completely true either. The research in
6: in areas where the schools have moved later shows that that the kids are going to bed at about the same time. So they are getting more sleep overall. That's what the research shows.
5: Sounds great. But I wanted to gut check this with some real teens. So I headed to Ensignal Junior Senior High School in Alameda a school that has recently switched to later school start times. A lot of adults are like, oh, the kids are just going to like stay up on the TikTok all night. Like they're not going to use that extra time. So true. <laughs> <laughs> not them. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah, I mean, it. it yeah, it, there is some truth to that. Yeah,
6: my dad would come to my room and be like, get off your phone. I'd be like, no, I'm not on my phone. You're sitting in the desk." Here. Yeah. But then I go back right after he leaves. So I think that's also why I go to sleep so late.
5: Heather and Julie encourage parents to bring their family together to talk about sleep and how they use technology. And you may not want to hear this, but adults need to follow their own advice. Setting a family bedtime routine like the ones common for younger kids can help. Don't be
6: afraid that your child won't love you anymore.
5: This year, Ensignal changed from an 8 a.m. start to an 8.30 start. And teens say that extra 30 minutes has made a world of difference in their morning routine.
6: Um, well, when I heard about it, I was like really happy cuz like 8:30 start time gives you more time to prep in the morning.
7: I had to bike to school during my freshman year, which is when the start time was like that early, and I was just tardy to every single first period because it's so hard to wake up in the morning and then I live-
5: I should also mention that this can be seen as an equity issue low-income students are more likely to rely on public transportation, which takes longer than being dropped off. And some of the students I talk to take care of siblings as part of their morning routine. All this leads to alarms being set extra early. Well,
3: for me, I wake up around 6.30, 6.45,
5: because my little brother, he comes over and he has to get dropped off school. So I have to get him ready, make his lunch. And we have to leave the house by 7.30,
6: 7.45. For me, when I wake up, I wake up around like 6.50, stare at my ceiling for 10 minutes, <laughs> so I actually wake up at 7 o'clock. I have a baby brother who I have to take to school, so I have to make sure he eats, um, and then I usually take him to school first
5: mm-hmm.
6: and make sure I have enough time to come to school. And-
5: All four of the students I talked to say they would like to get to bed at 10 p.m., but usually end up falling asleep between 11 and midnight. When I heard that, I thought, hmm, not bad. But if you're doing the math, on a good day, these teens get anywhere from six and a half to eight hours of sleep, which is lower than what research recommends. And that's on their new school schedule with the later start. As California transitions to an 8.30 start time for high schoolers, we may see other states follow suit. Who knows, maybe with enough sleep, being a teen can be just a little easier. In our third act, the final stop in our tour of time in schools, how a four-day school week could be cost-saving, but at what cost? Probably the most radical idea on how to break up a school day is the elusive and fascinating four-day school week. Which sounds nuts. Some might say, isn't that less time in school? Will that hurt our kids? Others might only dream of what they might accomplish on that fifth day. Let's break down what a four-day week has to offer. Some schools got a taste of it during distance learning. But for others, a four-day school week is the norm.
2: 24 states had these prior to the pandemic.
5: This is Paul Thompson, a professor at Oregon State University. He studies the four-day school week.
2: So more than half the states have at least one four-day school week school, but most are found in the western half of the U.S.
5: Some schools adopt the four-day school week thinking that they'll cut costs because they don't have to pay for school buses or hourly workers. But Paul says...
2: On the average, most schools really don't save a ton of money from the four-day school week. For most schools, you know, instructional staff is kind of the largest component of their budget. Overall, one of the major benefits is greater flexibility.
5: There's variation in how schools use the four-day week. For example, schools in the country may choose to keep the fifth day completely free so that parents have enough time to travel to appointments that can be far away. In Colorado, some schools use the fifth day to offer experiential learning opportunities, like internships.
2: But that's not the norm. I think that's the aspirational version of a four-day week model. Uh, Resources are the limiting factor.
5: Or instead of internships, you could use it for asynchronous learning, like working on projects. But before you get too excited, there are trade-offs and drawbacks. First off, in a four-day week, the school days are longer, which means earlier start times and later releases. Otherwise, students can lose as much as six and a half hours of instruction
2: each week. We see a lot of negative uh, achievement effects in places that didn't decide to expand the school day much uh, on those remaining four days.
5: And it's rare that school leaders extend the school day to fully compensate for the loss of that fifth day. So there is overall loss of instructional time during the course of a year. Another thing to think about is that many students rely on school for more than just learning. Many get at least one meal a day there.
2: Some schools do outsource to community organizations that that do this. But for the most part, most schools say we don't offer any provisions.
5: Childcare is also an issue. Right now, most four-day week schools are in communities where families live intergenerationally. So it works. But not every community has older folks at home to help with care.
2: There's probably parents working. Kids are, you know, home alone.
5: Another consideration is physical activity. Think about schools. Many of them have playgrounds, long hallways, other kids to chase, carpets to roll around on. Homes don't usually have all of that, which could mean less movement for kiddos. Even with all these concerns, some districts are facing pressure to switch to the four-day week. And it's coming from within.
2: Now schools are saying, what can we do for teachers to make their jobs a little bit easier, give them more flexibility? Most schools are kind of limited in terms of what they can do in terms of salary increases. And so the four-day school week even prior to the pandemic it was used often as kind of a non-monetary benefit that schools could offer to uh, teachers Same, but we can offer you this four-day school week instead as a way to kind of re- retain and attract, uh, you know, high-quality teachers.
5: And holding on to teachers is a top priority for schools right now. Burnout is high, and teachers got used to more flexibility during the pandemic. Kirsten Bramstedt from Ensignal High School liked having classes only four days a week.
7: I thought, this is great, we should do this all the time.
5: She imagines both teachers and students could use that fifth day to regroup and
7: catch up on personal work. You just wouldn't have classes that day. There wouldn't be bells ringing that day. Like, if there's project-based learning, that would be the day just to work on your project all day long.
5: But when Ensignal switched back to in-person learning, they went back to a five-day school week, which didn't make sense to Kirsten.
7: The thing is, there's this great resignation going on. And if they don't do something quick, people like me, who I'm a very good teacher with a lot of experience, we're going to quit or retire early. Paul Thompson, who studies this
5: stuff, says it's best not to move too hastily. This is a community decision. And if a school makes a knee-jerk change without input from families, it might not work out well for them. Surveys show 55% of teachers are considering leaving teaching.
7: And Kirsten doesn't think we can afford to wait. If the system's going to change, it can't be slow. It's got to be fast because what's going to happen when there's no teachers? The whole system's going to implode. And when researchers have
5: studied shorter work weeks in other sectors, they found that productivity remains the same and workers are happier. So in that sense, the numbers check out. But we have to remember that schools are not your typical workplace, and teachers are not your typical workers.
2: What they produce is very different than other things that are being produced in a work environment. What they produce is knowledge.
5: Most of the research on the four-day school week was done before the pandemic, so there's still a lot to learn. The pandemic really changed what we thought was possible with teaching. And
4: we've also seen a spike in teacher burnout. So the big question is whether it's worth it to reduce the number of hours at school if it means we can retain skilled teachers.
5: And if we do switch to a four-day school week, kids will have to wake up earlier, which we know has an impact on mental health. All of the changes in the school day are interconnected. It's up to each school to figure out the unique combination that works for their community.
4: And thus closes our third act on time. We know there's a lot more to explore, stuff like block schedules, schools that start at noon, and year-round school. But that's for another time. Thank you, Nima, for reporting this episode.
5: I learned a lot, Key, And it's all thanks to Audrey Waters, Nina Kraus, Becca Dell, Julie Wright, Heather Turgeon, and Paul Thompson. A big thank you to Ensignal Junior Senior High School, Principal Snyder, Kirsten Bramstadt and their students. Mindshift is produced by me, Nima Gobier.
4: And me, Ki Sung. Our editors are Jessica Plachik and Katrina Schwartz. Seth Samuel is our sound designer, Jen Chien is our head of podcast, and Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer.
5: If you love Mindshift and enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. It's the best way for people to find out about the show and it keeps us going. If you want to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at
4: MindShiftKQED. Thank you for listening.